dim the lights, get the popcorn going. Here comes Acts 17. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, 
I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, when you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offsprings. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, <laughs> an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. After this... Well, that was fun. I don't look at these videos while I'm studying this, so I'm seeing it the first time you are, too. Some good beards tonight. So the missionary team is out reaching the Gentiles, and they stop in Thessalonica. Uh, they labor there. They plant foundations there. And this would eventually become the church at Thessalonica, where two New Testament epistles are going to be penned to it. So when you read Thessalonians, these are the guys, and realize the, the planting of any church is not an easy thing. If you've ever worked in the dirt, if you've ever worked in the ground, if you've ever planted stuff, you know it's hard work, and it's no different in the spiritual realm, planting, uh, digging. It depends on what kind of ground you're dealing with. You know that? Where I live, uh, we have our house tucked in between two mountains, and there's a ledge, and there's shelf underneath there. When you dig, sometimes you hit massive rocks. We pulled a rock out of my foundation hole when we were digging it that was bigger than the excavator. We had to roll it out. So... 
I always think about church planting, and that's what's happening here. These missionary journeys are producing believers, and those believers are becoming uh, enclaves of Christians in their prospective areas, and they're planting churches. And some of the places they go, it's going to be hard, and some places it's going to seem impossible, and some places are going to be good ground. And the church is going to flourish there. Thessalonica will be a powerful New Testament church. Uh, it will have a, a, a good group of believers there. But the, the going at the beginning is not easy. Now, he starts off in war, verse 1 and 2 there. He's traveling there at Thessalonica. It says in verse 2, according to Paul's custom. So this is, uh, they're getting a little rhythm down here, the way they do things. And uh, all of us know that there's a learning curve to everything that we do. Paul is learning what to do and what works and what doesn't work. It's going to be even more refined. The Holy Spirit's leading them. But according to his custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them in the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had suffered and rose again from the dead, saying, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, just look at that there. He goes into a Gentile area, but still, as his custom is, he goes into the synagogue. The scripture says that what? Salvation is for the Jew first and then the Gentile. So he keeps to that form and pattern. Now, notice what he does there. He invests three Sabbaths. That's three weeks. He invests three Sabbaths there, uh, teaching them through the word of God, proving to them through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, that's not an easy task to do. It's a big investment of time. Uh, could you imagine going someplace and being there for three weeks, three Sundays, and you've got three, uh, well, it was Saturday, it was a Sabbath, three Saturdays to prove to these guys. And notice, none of these guys are novices in the scripture. So as you go through them, guess what they're going to do? They're going to challenge you. They're going to disagree with you. They're going to argue with you. Anybody here like to argue with people? I find it exhausting. To argue about theology is even worse. You know, some things are better felt than telt. You know, and I'd rather give somebody my testimony than argue about scriptures. Do you know all the cults? They like to take their people and pre-program about eschatology and end time things and little obscure scriptures. And, you know, whether it's Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they always pull this thing out and they say, well, what about this? And like, you, you, you might have barely ever saw that scripture before. What about John 3.16? Let's talk about that. No, but they want to argue about one little fine point. Realize what Paul is doing here is a big investment of time and energy, and we need to understand that. It wasn't easy, but he was willing to put in the labor. In verse 4, you see fruit to his labor. Some of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, the Greeks there, that were following after Judaism, many of them believed, and some of the prominent women. So you see there's some fruit everywhere he goes, and everywhere they bring the gospel, it produces some kind of fruit. Some of the Jews believe, a lot of the Gentiles believe, some of the prominent women. And the women there are significant because each one of them represents an, a household. They were prominent. They had uh, pull in those societies. Remember, a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these societies were matriarchal in a sense. God understands how to get strategic people into the kingdom to open the doors to the gospel. So fruit is produced. In verse 5, as usual, uh, you know, they go in. They do their thing as their custom, but in verse 5, we see the usual counterattack. Now, the Jews became jealous, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jacob, Jason, where they were, 
where they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So what happens? We say the pattern over and over again. We see it over and over again. I hope you're, you're getting used to this. Wherever the gospel goes, there's resistance against it. It will produce fruit. Realize that. It's not going to be easy. It's going to pr- produce a mixed bag of fruit. What is it this time? It's, the pattern is some Jews, a lot of Gentiles, and some prominent people in the area. This is what we're seeing. And then what happens? The devil pushes back. And we said we got to get used to this. Anytime the gospel advances, anytime the church advances, anytime Full Gospel Center wants to reach out of its four walls and impact the community, the enemy's going to push back. And so here's the pushback and the pushback this time. Last time it was in the form of that fortune teller little slave girl. Do you remember her? She would follow them around and prophesy and annoy them. And then they cast the demons out of her and they couldn't make any more money with her. So then the town goes into an uproar. This time the, the, the religious Jews in Thessalonica that don't like this message, that didn't receive it, they form themselves a little mob. And they, they get this mob, and it says of wicked men or worthless men, whatever kind. I mean, you could probably think of the type of people they got. Thugs, right? Hooligans, just standing around, just waiting to cause trouble, right? And so here they get this group of guys, and they, they blow the city up. They make trouble. They stir things up. Now, Jason was a local man who supported the ministry of the, of the team here, and he had housed them in his home. So because the missionary team is not readily available and they can't get their hands on Paul, they direct all of their wrath towards Jason. He becomes the target of the attack here. What's the enemy's hope? That this guy would never allow these guys in his home again? He would never, you know... Uh, kind of underwrite the gospel here he would just be so afraid to even come anywhere near these guys that they wouldn't come back so in verse six and seven jason is drug out of his home and he's brought before the authorities notice that christians are always persecuted for bringing the gospel now you say well you know we live in america and it's free here and there's no persecution here will you please wake up and see what's going on Our country is a wonderful place to live. We have a wonderful constitution. We have wonderful freedoms and liberties. But if you can't feel the darkness that is pushing back against the gospel, then I don't know what, I don't know, your feelers broke. So we'll pray for it after service and get a fix. But there's a pushback against the gospel. And now, not against religion, not against churches that will partner with the world and preach a social gospel, not, not churches that will ordain any, you know, people in a moral lifestyle to stand behind a pulpit. No pushback against them because the world loves them. But if you preach the truth, if you preach the truth that we're all sinners and we need a savior and that man needs to repent, there's talk of repentance in here. When people start to hear that, they, they don't like it because, you know, the truth demands that we respond to it, that we admit that, you know, we're lost and we need to be found. And the world doesn't like that, so it pushes back. So this local group of thugs whipped up by the religious people who reject the gospel, they blow the city up, and it's a big problem. Jason becomes the target of their wrath. He's drugged from his home. Now, just picture if that was you. Just picture if because of preaching the gospel tonight, there was a a no-knock raid on your house, and they busted through your door, and they drug you out zip-tied you, threw you in the back of the paddy wagon, and you're off to jail. And the charge is, you're preaching the gospel. You say, well, that, that's crazy talk. That happens all the time in, in countries all across the world. Happens in China, happens in the Middle East. 
we're just so insulated from it, we can barely entertain that it's reality. So uh, the charge against them is that, the, first of all, the guy said, these are the men who have upset the world. Did you hear what he said? See what it says there? Wow, that's, uh, that's a pretty good charge right there. I'd be happy with that. Yeah, the, 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 we upset the world. What? The, he's saying the light is annoying the darkness. So that, that's kind of a good accusation there. And he says, these men teach there is another king besides Caesar. Now get a load of this here. I want you to wrap your head around what's going on here. That was a religious Jewish leader who rejected the gospel. And what's his argument? These guys are saying that there's another king besides Caesar. So let, let me get this straight. You have uh, one of God's chosen people advocating for the heathens' false claims of divinity of their Caesar, and he's standing against his own prophetic scriptures that talked about the Messiah coming. Wow. Wow. This guy had studied the scripture all his life. He knew Isaiah. He knew the prophets. He knew all of the, all the messianic prophets. And, and they're talking about this Jesus. And Paul's even proven to them from the scripture that this is him. And what's his defense? Well, we don't want that. And so, you know, we're, we're, just, supposed to, we're just supposed to follow Caesar. And he's saying, these guys are talking about different kings. And so that's their argument. That's their charge. What a pitiful way to stand against the gospel. God help those who reject Christ, who know better. And so the charge is empty and it's baseless, as all the accusations usually are. Think about what they charge Jesus with. Um, Jason is persecuted for his support of the gospel, for housing the men. He's shaken down for a pledge. They make him pay a bond. Too bad this wasn't New York. He wouldn't have to pay anything. He would just get out. Uh, he's threatened and released. And there he goes, you know, and what's their purpose in all of this? They want to intimidate him. And that's what, understand, that's how the enemy always operates. He, he tries to bring intimidation on God's people. But we've got to be bold as lions. We've got to have strength. We've got to have character. We've got to know that our God is bigger than the kingdoms of this world. Come on, church. And, you know, Jason is threatened and charged, and they take money from him, and now his money's on the line, and he's set free. Verse 10 and 15, all while this is going on, uh, Verses 10 through 15, all, all the time while this is going on, Paul and Silas are sent away right away uh, to, to Berea. So they're going to be with the Bereans in just a little bit here. But notice that the missionary teams are getting a little smarter. What is, what's the learning curve here? They know we preach, there's trouble, and it's time to get out of Dodge. Okay? You know, and, and that's wisdom right there. Well, you should stay around and take your lumps. O only if the Holy Spirit says to stay around. Amen? Do you see wisdom here? And Christians need to use wisdom. Amen. Be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. That, that's something we need to understand the application of. So these guys kind of already slipping away here. Immediately they're sent uh, to Berea and immediately there uh, they go to the synagogue. So the same pattern again. <clears throat> now I like verse 11. Remember I told you about different types of ground here. Verse 11, it says this. Now though... Those in Berea were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, for they received the word with great eagerness. So there again, what does that mean, they were more noble-minded? Well, they were students of the word. They studied the scripture. They were open-minded. But really, what are we saying here? It was better ground, 
right? Remember I said some is hard ground. Thessalonica was hard ground. They, they came in, they blew up the, t- the city with just a little bit of the gospel. They had some few converts, and they're chased out of town. Now they go to this place, and these people are open-minded, and their hearts are pure, and they're full of God's word. It says what? That they, they receive the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So Paul would preach and they would go to the word. They would go to the Old Testament scriptures and they would find what he was saying and it would ring true in their spirits. Now, why didn't this happen in Thessalonica? Well, they had a different heart there. You see, you can have the same scripture, you can have the same teaching, you can have the same system, but it all depends on the heart of the person. A heart that's good ground will receive the things of God and do what God's doing now and receive it. A heart that's hard and stony is going to resist. And so this is a refreshing thing. Thank God for Berea. Thank God for the Bereans. Amen. Every once in a while, all of us need a break, even the Apostle Paul. So it's going good there. And uh, he brings the word. The Bereans were lovers of the word, students of the word. Verse 12, we see the same mixed bag. This time we see uh, the, the same fruit that we see produced. Jews get saved. Many of the Greeks get saved. And prominent women again. So even if the ground's hard, even if the ground's soft, you're still going to see fruit. It was a little easier uh, to plant and to water there. And they see this fruit. Verse 13 and 14 the Bereans are great, and, you know, they wanted to hear the word, and they weren't going to chase them out. But the devil sends the lynch mob from Thessalonica down there. Isn't it amazing? We're doing good in this town. What could go wrong? Well, the guys from the last town are taking a road trip. Here they come. And it's, it's just, you know, that's the way the enemy is. He uses his resources always to upset the gospel. We've got to be prepared for it. We've got to be willing to resist it. Um, you see in verse 13, 14, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea, also they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So they found someone to agitate and someone to stir up. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go far as the sea, uh, uh, and Silas and Timothy remained. So again, same pattern, we're seeing this, and I, I, want, I want you to see the pattern there. They're getting smart now. They they bring the gospel. When the pushback comes, they slip out. This time they got Paul out of there quick because Paul, remember the shift happened when it was Paul and Barnabas. It was, you know, Barnabas and Silas. Uh, Barnabas was the kind of the chief. Now Paul has rose in prominence. He's an anointed speaker. This is a guy who's going to write two thirds of the New Testament. The things that the Holy Spirit's pouring out of his mouth, they, they will stir up the enemy. Amen. Because it's powerful truth. So they're getting to understand that Paul's the focal point, and they slip him out of the area right away. They, they send him as far as the sea, all by himself. Timothy and Silas stay behind. And you say, well, why did they stay behind? Uh, because they were obviously want, they were less prominent, less of a target, and they needed to strengthen the believers there. Remember, that's part of the apostolic ministry. When, when something is produced spiritually, when fruit is produced, and, and what I mean when, when I say fruit is produced is that people get saved. They need to be mentored. They need to be discipled. You know, if we just do altar calls around here and people raise their hand, who wants Jesus, and, and they get saved, and we don't do anything with them, and we don't continue to preach them, we don't get them in discipleship, we don't train them in the Word, we're really committing spiritual abortions. Because you don't birth a baby and leave it there. You've got to tend to it. You've got to nurture it. So these guys stay behind at their own risk. It's not safe, 
but they're a little less of a target than Paul. They stay behind to nurture the fruit that was produced. And I want you to see, when any time we produce fruit in our walk, in our life, any time we lead someone into the kingdom, we have to treat them like spiritual babes, and babes need a lot of attention, they need a lot of nurturing, and they need time and energy, amen? We're all here today because someone put the time and energy to nurture us, amen? We're here today because our mothers didn't let our fathers exchange us for something else at Walmart. Paul's driven all the way as far as to the sea, and he winds up in Athens. He calls Tim and Silas. When he gets to Athens, he's realizing this is, you know, is going to be a good place to preach the gospel. It's a hub. We're going to talk about that. Timothy and Silas hear from Paul, and they meet him there. Now, verses 16 through 21 talk about what goes on in Athens. Athens is a Greek cultural hotspot. The Greeks were the prominent uh, people, the Greeks and the Romans, but particularly the Greeks were prominent in philosophy and thought. Remember, the democracy uh, that came out of Greece is the prototype for our constitutional republic that we have here. The Greeks were amazing thinkers. They were way ahead of their times. And so here comes Paul, and he's in this area. It's a cultural hotspot. It's a strategic place. You know, the Holy Spirit likes strategic places. Amen? And he'll send us there. He'll send us, and sometimes we don't understand, but he understands. And it was a strategic spot. Now, knowing the culture of a people before you minister to them is very important. If you've ever been on the mission field, I've been blessed to be out on the mission field several times in Guatemala. I've been to some uh, other places where, you know, the culture is different. And it takes time. You need to assimilate into the culture. You need to feel the rhythm of what's going on. You need to understand the, the makeup of the people to a certain degree. I mean, you can get up there as someone from a different place and start, you know, trying to preach the word or preach the message and not connect with them at all. I mean, it's, it's a scary thing when you look out there and there's 100 Guatemalans looking at you like, you know. <laughs> but you got to, you know, and the Holy Spirit does an amazing job and he does an amazing job with Paul here. But it's, it's a good thing to know the culture of the people. Now, Paul... Paul is a genius. He, this guy's a smart guy. He's well-groomed. Gamaliel mentored him. He's well-versed in Scripture. He understands culture. He's a Roman citizen. He understands Greek philosophy. Man, God picked the right guy when he knocked Paul to the ground and blinded him and said, he's my chosen instrument. There's a reason he chose this guy, because he's perfect for the job here. He uses his vast knowledge of the culture and of the makeup of the people. And he tailors his presentation of the gospel so it has a maximum effect in that culture. Paul's the one said, I'm all things to all men that I might win some of them. This is an example of it that we have to see. You say, Pastor, why are you explaining this to us? Because we need to follow suit with that. We need to know who we're ministering to. We need to understand even the culture of this young generation. You know, I, I turned 50 years old this year. The, the young people today are like from a different planet than I grew up in. And those of you who are older, you know, I mean, it, it is so different. The way they think is so completely different. The level of respect and submission and obedience and we didn't all get trophies. Man, I'm so old, I can remember when only the team that won got a trophy. Anybody remember that? I played most of my, I think all my little league, senior league, everything, I think I got one trophy. My mom's probably still got it. It's probably somewhere with my baby shoes, but one trophy. Okay, these guys, he takes the time to understand that he's, 
you know, in the, in the worldly sense, he's brilliant at this. He's perfect for it. Now, verse 16 and 17, uh, there's something interesting here. Paul feels provoked in his spirit. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so he's spearheaded the mission, the guys are coming, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing a city full of idols. Now, I want to just stop there for a second. You say, what's going on here? Paul is feeling the spiritual oppression of the area. And what was the oppression linked to? The fact that these people were, you know, they, were mono, they weren't monotheistic. They, they believed in many gods. They worshipped all kinds of things, philosophy. And there were idols everywhere. And people were worshipping them. You say, well, why did that bother him? Why did that provoke him? Why did that trouble him? Because he could see through the spiritual darkness and see these people lost, worshipping things that could never save them. You know, Christians, as we look around and we see our friends and our family and our co-workers and our neighbors laying their lives down, chasing after things, worshiping idols and icons. I mean, we should be broken. We shouldn't just be like, you know, oh, that's, you know, it's, that's their business. You know, we're just, you know, it's a personal thing. We should be grieved in our spirit because they're lost. And without Jesus and without repentance, they're stumbling into hell every day. And that should really bother us. It provoked Paul. It bothered him. Because having the truth and, and being in the light means that when you see the darkness and you see people that God loves lost in the darkness, that should bother us. And if it doesn't bother us, we need to spend some time at the feet of Jesus and declutter our lives. Because maybe we have just a little much, too much idolatry in our own lives to notice that there's a lost world all around us. So... What does he do? He follows his pattern. He goes into the synagogue. He reasons with them. He challenges the religious Jews intellectually. He wrestles through the scripture with them. There again, this is a a painstaking, frustrating thing. So he reasoned in the synagogue. Now, that sounds nice. He reasoned in the synagogue. What does that mean? He argued with them. He strived with them. He answered their questions. He, 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 He listened to their scoffing. He watched them get up and walk out. This is the kind of thing that happened. Remember, anytime he brings up the resurrection the Sadducees are immediately offended because they don't believe in the resurrection but one of the pivotal components of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ you can't preach the gospel without mentioning that he died and rose again because if Jesus just came and he died then he was just a good teacher who didn't play his cards right and they killed him but he came to die and he was only in that tomb a short time and he rose again And so you can't preach the gospel without the resurrection. So he reasons, he struggles, he pours through the scripture, and he's trying to find out what kind of ground are are in their hearts there. Is it good ground? Is it tough ground? Is it stony ground? It's It's a painstaking task, and it can be frustrating. Verse 18, uh, you know, when he's done reasoning in the synagogue... And, you know, doing what he could do there. He he gives the Jews the first opportunity. Verse 18 shows us that the philosophical crowd engages him, and they're curious. They're listening to Paul's message, and they're hearing this stuff about Jesus, and they call him a a foreign deity, and they hear stuff about the resurrection, and, you know, they're intrigued about that. So, you know, his message gets in the ears of these uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And if you study Greek philosophy, you're going to see these are prominent uh, schools of thought there. Um, he, he converses with some of them saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? So they think he's just, you know, he's just some babbler. They're trying to figure out where he's coming from. 
Uh, others were uh, interested in him. He's proclaiming strange deities um, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. So understand what ha what's happening here. He goes to the Jews. He pours through the scripture with them. The philosophical crowd now engages him, and they, they, they want to hear Paul's message. It's strange, and it's new, and they're curious, and they're excited. Do you notice what it said in the, in the text about them, that all the people in Athens there were constantly just wanting to talk and hear about new ideas? And they like that sort of stuff. So this was something new, and it had piqued their curiosity. They invite him to, they invite him to the Areopagus. Now, Areopagus is a, a Latin form of a Greek word that means Mars Hill. So this is going to become known as Paul's, uh, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. Now, Mars Hill was the prominent venue for the philosophers in Athens to come and kind of just share their ideas. So it's like, you know, he got invited, invited to Madison Square Garden to come and talk, you know. And so this is a big opportunity for Paul and for the gospel. There again, you know, how did this happen? He was just, you know, got a strategic. He's moving him here to the epicenter of Greek culture, to the prominent uh, venue to, to share ideas. And he's invited there. So this is a great opportunity for him uh, his sermon on Mars Hill is captured in verse 22 through 34. And what a masterpiece of the Holy Spirit it is as God pours through him to connect with them in a way. Remember, it's a significant opportunity for the gospel uh, to be in this premier venue. Uh, it's a philosophical hotspot. And Paul, here's the mic. Let us hear what you got. So verse 22 through 23, he's full of the Holy Spirit and he uses philosophy and the religious culture around him as a springboard to sharing the gospel. And that's what I want you to see here, how he uses the culture as it, and he segues right into the gospel. It says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in all respects. And they probably took that as a compliment. They're like, yes, that's right very religious. You forgot intellectual and intelligent and handsome. You know, he was kind of stroking them a little bit, they thought. He says, I, I see that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining objects of your worship, remember all the idolatry, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Let's just stop there for a second. What did he just do? What a masterpiece of a sermon. He connects with the culture by, hey, I kind of walked by this idol, this icon, this place of worship you got here to the, own, the unknown God. So the Greeks were so philosophical and they were so religious and they were so interested in worshiping different gods that they actually had, you know, a, a, a one that was the unknown God in case we missed anybody. You know, kind of like an atheist in a foxhole who prays to everybody as the shells are coming in, right? I don't want to miss anybody. And so <laughs> it would kind of like being having a book in the Bible that you could just fill in the blanks, you know, it was the unknown God. What an opportunity. He says, oh, the unknown God. I know the unknown God. Let me tell you all about them. Now, if you're not getting this, if you're looking at me like a cow looking at a new gate, I apologize. But 
This is how we need to learn how to try and connect with people when we share with them. Now you say, well, I can't do that. I'm not the Apostle Paul. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, amen, dwells in you. He'll quicken your mind and give you opportunity. So, you know, sometimes let's just open our mouths and see what the Holy Spirit fills it with. You let me know how that goes, but, you know, give that a try. Um, Paul, here's the unknown God, here's the deal with him, and he begins to, he begins to just pour out the gospel. And uh, this, is a, this is a great opportunity. It's a preacher's dream. He says, the unknown God, I know him, and I want to tell you all about him. You better believe that piqued their interest because they like new ideas. Now, effective communicators know their audience, and they look for common points of interest. Paul did a masterful job of finding one, and it's an awesome thing to behold. He says, the unknown God is the creator of heaven and earth. As creator of all things, he's not confined to man-made things like temples. So there again, it's philosophical. It makes sense to them. He transcends man. He needs nothing from man to make him complete. Verse 25, he's the author and provider and sustainer of life. The theology in these few verses here is just amazing. In, in just what Paul springs into in sharing the gospel from the unknown God, little bit as his segue he's basically saying first of all God is a he you might not have picked that up but that's important these days he says he okay so they worship female deities too so he wants to know right out of the box he's our heavenly father it's the father the son and the holy spirit God is masculine in both the old testament and new testament he's he and he's also omniscient he knows everything he's omnipotent he's all-powerful he's pre-existent he's both the creator and provider do you see in just these few verses what a powerful picture of God he's presenting for him the theology here is rich and it's powerful and it's cutting to the core he provides all people with life and breath and all things. Paul gives a, a brief history of creation. He kind of, you know, they, they like creation stories. They like to know uh, what the religious system thought about creation in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. What did he just say? He said he took Adam and Eve, and he created from one man, and he populated the earth. Now, that's a unique creation story to Christianity in the sense that he's just sharing a little tidbit there. Uh, God determined everything about the people. It says their appointed times and their boundaries and their habitation. So realize, he's giving them a picture because they were so confused and worshipped so many different things and heard so many different stories, he wants to let them know what Christianity is about. And, and in just a few short sentences, a few short verses, he's doing an incredible job. Verse 27 uh, he shows that man has something inside him that yearns for God. And, you know, this is why they're religious and they're seekers, that they would seek God and perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, the, the text says, but it says exist here. And some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. So uh, there again, he uses culture. He uses uh, the arts. He, he quotes poets that had some theological soundness in their presentation. And he's clicking with these guys. He's connecting with them. And they're hearing what he has to say. So, you know, verse 29 uh, is an ever so subtle jab at the emptiness of their idolatry. And, you know, I know they're picking this up. We might not, but it says here, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. He's saying, 
we're, we're children of God. We're his offspring. Why are you guys worshiping idols made of wood and stone and silver? What You know, we have the divine nature in us. We are children of God and he, formed by the art and through and thought of man. So he's, he's kind of just giving a jab towards their idolatry there, and I'm sure they're picking it up. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. There it is. So he's basically saying, you know, you guys are in, you're religious, you're into your idolatry, and God is willing to overlook all of that in a time of ignorance. And, you know, th this is his, they're going to segue to the fact that Jesus calls us to repent. Now, that's kind of the, that's kind of the linchpin there, and he leads them up to it. Um, you know, you're not far off from God. You're children of God. Don't worship created things. Don't worship things made by the hands of men. You know, your poets have cited the scripture, and, and idolatry is an empty thing. You worship these icons. The great news is this. God is willing to overlook all of that and chalk it up to ignorance of the past, and now he's, he's willing to, you know, draw a line on that if you'll repent and come to Jesus. So there it is. He brings it to, he, he brings the presentation of the gospel to a, a place where there needs to be a choice. And this is important for us to understand. We don't want to just philosophize about Jesus to people. We don't just want to share concepts about Jesus. We want to bring people to the place where they can acknowledge their sin and see the Savior and repent and receive him. Amen. A lot of times we stop short of bringing people to that place. And we'll just talk about Jesus a little bit. And I know there are times, you know, you can't go for the throat right away. You've got to plant some seeds. So use wisdom. I mean, I've seen Christians who have zeal without knowledge scare away more people than they, than they bring into the kingdom. Now it's quiet. And, you know, we don't want to do that. I mean, I've seen, and it's, it's you know, God bless them, bless their hearts. They're really trying. They're, you know, they're, they're excited and they're saying some crazy stuff. I don't know if you've ever been around, you know, people witnessing. I've done a lot of that stuff. And you hear them and the, half of what they're saying is unbiblical. And then they just quoted a line from a Simon and Garfunkel song. And, you know, the, and, and you're like just going, oh, no, Jesus, no. You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, they kind of scared them away. Paul brings them to a place where they, they, they got to make a choice and see their need for a Savior and brings up the subject of repentance. And so uh, it's a good pattern for us to acknowledge. Um, repentance is God offering a way of, of escape from all of the, you know, the idolatry and the sins of the past. And uh, verse 31 is interesting here in a sense where he, he begins to warn them about you know, judgment that's coming. Verse 30 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So what is he saying? There's an impending judgment that we're all going to have to face, guys. And you know what? All of us are sinners, and we need to repent, and the way of escape is to come to Christ. So there again, he's skillfully warning them of, of the fact that the bridge is out ahead. And your philosophy and your idols and your intellectual approach is not going to save you from your sin. Um, so there again, these are all... Uh, you know, this is a good pattern for us to look at in our 
the way we share the gospel. And, you know, I, I encourage you, if you have a heart for the lost, if you have a heart to evangelize, study this text here and, and look at the pattern and see what Paul says and what he doesn't say. Notice he didn't talk about end times or about, you know, the, the beast or the seven horns and the seven trumpets. Hello? I've seen Christians tr talking to unbelievers about the rapture or about tithing. What? What? Can we get the cart anymore in front of the horse? You got to get them saved first. What good is it if you got a tithing people, people who understand the pre-tribulation rapture and have good eschatology and they're lost? Uh, so wisdom, uh, he, he says that what? Jesus will be the judge. He, he judge you by one man. And the proof that Jesus is the Messiah is the fact that God raised him from the dead. So that's a powerful thing there. Uh, he brings it in for landing. Verse 32 through 34 is, again, the response to the gospel message. It's the usual response. It's a great sermon. It's so powerful. But there again, we're, you know, the response of the people is not our grade on what we do. Amen. We just have to be faithful. Paul faithfully presented the word under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when they heard, that was Paul's job. Of the resurrection of the dead, he told them the truth. Some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So some outright rejected it. Some kind of just were being polite. Now, oh, we'd like to hear some more about this. You know, usually those are the people who say, well, I have to pray about it. And so uh, we like to hear more concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. He was done. He did his job. Verse 34, the mixed bag of fruit. Uh, some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysimus, the Arapagai, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there is some fruit to the gospel. Every time the gospel is presented, there is fruit. It's a mixed bag. It's the same as in the other places. Some of the people sneer. Some of them scoff. Some of them say, we want to hear some more. We're undecided. But Paul was faithful to preach the word, and it always returns to God with fruit. It doesn't return void. Uh, the chapter ends. What an opportunity. I hope, I hope that you're encouraged to see here that, you know what, we are called to bring the, the gospel to the world, and that's the good news. And you and I should learn how to present the good news skillfully by understanding who we're speaking to. You're going to share the gospel. It's still the gospel. You don't change the gospel. But if you're talking to a teenager, you've got to present it differently than you're talking to, you know, a baby boomer. There, there's a different approach. If you're down in the south or you're in a foreign country, there, there's a different way to present the gospel. Never water the gospel down. Never leave important elements out. Be faithful to deliver it, and it will produce fruit. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I thank you for everyone in this place that loves your word, that loves your people, and that has a heart for the lost. Father, I pray tonight that you would burden each of us. Yeah, I said it, burden us. With the souls of people who don't know you. God, we're so busy doing our thing, the hustle and bustle of life, and we have so much on our minds and so much on our plates, but help us not to lose sight of the fact that we are in this world, but not of it, and we're just passing through. And much like Paul and much like the early missionary team, though, we're, we're different than him, and it's a different uh, time in the church age, but we are called to be evangelists. And God, burn in the 
principles and the truth that we see as these men share the gospel and plant churches and mentor and disciple. Father, that we would be productive in the earth now and that the kingdom of God would find uh, laborers in us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.